Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Um, Today, I am pretty excited. So Eric Gustafson is a new friend and contact that I've made here in the Twin Cities, and he's got a super interesting past. He's uh, been involved in two businesses that have eventually gone past the finish line, and he's sold. And he's going to give us a little bit of a rundown of the intricacies of his first family business with his brother, um, kind of the timing and the roll-up that him and his brother ended up doing within the digital print and blueprint business um, back in the mid-90s. And Eric is uh, now consulting. He's involved in a lot of different businesses, private and public, etc. And He's got a lot of good insights about what he did right. Uh, a lot of it was through some survival tactics and then just turned into best practices. And then um, towards the end, we really hit a good topic and good stride about the conversation of the emotional and identity fusion that a lot of us as business owners have with our companies. And some of the things that he did just kind of intuitively with his company and how he is now advising other business owners about how to look at their business separate from themselves and how to kind of step above all of the noise and then what can make your business valuable because of that. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy it. This is an interview with Eric Gustafson. Warren, Eric, how are you doing today? Hey, great, Ryan. Thanks for coming on the Life After Business podcast. Happy to do it. We've got a lot of uh, overlap with your pa- your past and some of the past of the business where I came from. So why don't you just kind of kick it off and give our over uh, our listeners an overview of your experience from you know your college days into owning a business and you know a little bit of an overview. Sure, sure. Well, I uh, I left uh, Colorado College with a degree in political science, never thinking I'd go into business, and I went to work for a a gentleman named uh, Senator David Durenberger, U.S. Senator Durenberger, and uh, learned a lot about uh, running political campaigns, and actually they hired a young attorney to be my boss, a guy who never went anywhere named uh, Tim Pawlenty, actually ended up running for president, so, and became governor of Minnesota. So I had a great uh, fun time uh, in politics and um, learned a lot and went off to graduate school in Washington, D.C. to study uh, public finance, thinking I'd live in D.C. and kind of be a lobbyist or something. And uh, lo and behold, my brother called me up and said, uh, do you want to go into business with me? I'm looking at this thing called digital printing. And I said, what's that? And he said, I don't know, but I met some smart guys uh, that are doing it, and so uh, I need a partner. So that's kind of, then I, I moved back to uh, Minneapolis from Washington, D.C. in about, I guess, 1991 and uh, went into business with my brother. So what what made you go from the aspiration of being a career politician or lobbyist to running a business? Well, uh I guess it just sounded like a, a very interesting opportunity, and, and I was enjoying graduate school, but, uh, you know, to be 
part of it was I, I just wasn't really enjoying the East Coast necessarily. And uh, so I thought coming back to Minnesota, uh, I grew up in Duluth, it would be a would be nice, and I wanted to. And I, I wasn't sure I wanted to live in Washington. Well, I knew I didn't want to live in Washington D.C., so I was going to come back. And uh, it just seemed like an interesting opportunity, and the timing, the timing was right. So, the timing, and you have a very interesting timing with this business and the industry. So, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of what the digital printing and what kind of the niche that you guys had and uh, kind of lay us uh, some steps along the timeline within your company. Sure. Well, it started as a uh, a blue printing company, which is sounds so ancient, but basically you take a, a vellum from an architect, which is a drawing on a piece of plastic, and then you'd put a piece of paper on top of that and you'd push it in a machine and and then you'd you know do that a hundred times and then you would have a set of plans and architects you know would need 10 sets or 20 sets and uh, so that's that was the how the business started and then uh, this was now in the 90s and so uh, people were starting to figure out CAD software people were you know kind of looking at digital printing and so all this was happening simultaneously but it started really as a, a a blueprint company, which is really a very non-glamorous business. But if you did it right, uh, you know, it could be very profitable. And there what was, was like no price per click at that point. Like, what were people paying per blueprint? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I I'm going back in my memory here, but I think it was it was <laughs> kind of like five cents a square foot, and and then you know, uh, uh, one big print would be maybe I guess six square feet or something you know so you'd get so it was really a business of nickels but you would try to you know get two million nickels a job or something so <laughs> right. so it was really kind of a very mundane grubby nickels kind of business but once you captured projects and then you would also capture the uh the originals and the architects would leave them with you and then they would just call in and say you know, could I have, you know, 10 sets of prints or 20 sets or whatever. And as kind of a backstory, when I came back to Minnesota and I was in business with my brother, uh, one, I, I said, you know, this, this doesn't seem as much fun as I thought. <laughs> so uh, I think, you know, we might need to, you know, Im figure this out a little bit. And he said, yeah, you're exactly right. And so I befriended a guy in San Francisco who was kind of the king of blueprinting. He had kind of cornered the whole market. And so it was probably one of my all-time best sales calls. I called him up and said, hey, Paul, I'd like to come to San Francisco and talk to you about this business. And he was actually selling his company. He was about 55, so he was on his way out. And so he was very happy to uh, and very gracious to share with me his 20 years of secrets. And so that... That was really uh, probably the all-time best sales call I ever made, and uh, so I came back and with all the newfound information, and my brother and I, and we had some good key managers, kind of re redid the whole company, frankly. And you know, he was an engineer, my friend in San Francisco, so production control, and we had a fleet of vehicles, and and uh, and the kind of the main thing we started doing is running prints overnight which no one else was really doing at the time. And so how so did that, your brother, when you came back, how did your brother take, I mean, 
What was the communication like? Did he know that you were coming back with a bunch of stuff that you guys wanted to implement? I mean, what was the dialogue between the two of you? Yeah, well, so he he actually, to his credit, had a very uh, big network of guys all around the country doing this. There there weren't a lot of people doing this niche, so so you kind of knew who the best people were in any in every NFL city. And so when I said, "Who is the smartest guy you know?" He said, well, that would be my friend Paul in San Francisco. So to his credit, you know, he, he had the connection, and then I went and kind of leveraged it, and he he was fully on board because we both knew that Paul really, uh, well, we believed he was smart, and then, of course, you know, because he was selling his company and cornered the whole market, <laughs> that was kind of proof that he, in fact, was not only smart, but it was working as well. And so, um, so, so my brother, were, you know, he was all for it. So when you came back, um, where in this timeline with your brother, did you buy in with your brother? Was there some sort of agreement between you two? What did, what did that look like? Well, and again, my, my memory is a little foggy here, but kind of part of the backstory was uh, my father was also a, a non-working uh, owner of the business. And so uh, he and his brother, my father's brother, had been had had been partners and so i i can't i mean i can't remember all the details exactly but my brother uh had purchased and the company had been doing very poorly uh you would probably not remember this but you know there was a big recession you know in the beginning of the 90s and so i think my brother was able to uh purchase the a big chunk of the company from you know our uncle for a, a fairly good price a fair price but you know, because things weren't going so yeah, well. Fair, fair according to the recession, right? Fair according to the recession. And, you know, my uncle was actually a judge and, you know, he wasn't interested really in being in the blueprint business. And then so through that, uh, and we had set up a couple different uh, owners, you know, legal structures. We'd had another part of the business that um, we got into the color graphics and we set that up as a separate entity. And so through it all, though, I think at the end of the day, we were kind of about a third, a third, a third uh, partners on the business. Got it. So I gotta, uh, I want you to restate the story that you've told me in the past about the, I, I, I honestly, I think it's the quickest return on investment that any person in business has ever made with the machines that you guys ended up uh, purchasing and part of the new operations that you were doing. Why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a, a lowdown on that? Sure. Well, again, you know, this was the blueprinting business, you know, pre-digital. And, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine the whole, you know, United States, there's that many <laughs> actual blueprint machines at that time. But for we, we befriended a, a couple people that sold used equipment. And, you know, maybe a company was going out of business or an architecture firm was going out of business. And we could basically you know, buy these, you know, kind of contraption. My analogy would be snowmobiles when they first started out. I mean, if you went out with five, you'd come back with two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, think, you know, so they were they were always kind of broken and whatever. But so we were able to get them for, I mean, I want to just say like $500. And basically, if you ran, you know, one job on them or something in an hour, you, you recouped your whole cost of the, the equipment in an hour. But but you know it's it's it was you know they were herky jerky machines and they were always broken so it, I don't want to make it sound like we were that smart we just 
were willing to. I, I remember now that we had a guy. All he did was maintenance, and so he would literally be, you know, fixing machines as they would go down. And but yeah, so it was it was an interesting little niche that we get these machines for for cheap, put them in, quick return on investment. So then really it became about managing the labor as a person. So labor as a percentage of sales was a huge metric for us i mean that was the game was managing the you know because it was kind of a cyclical you'd get huge projects and sometimes you know like in november we figured out all the engineers and architects would go deer hunting <laughs> so <laughs> so november was it was a very bad month for us but we knew that and so we'd manage the labor accordingly got it so we you know as you are kind of the pioneers in the digital printing world, you know, you have some interesting timelines that you guys were able to capture on. So kind of walk us through the steps of through your growth and then the eventual exit. Sure. Well, uh, I mean, one of the, the things on the timeline was uh, there was a huge blizzard on Halloween in 1991 this kind of famous around certainly Minneapolis, maybe even the whole Midwest, and it basically shut down, you know, the town for, you know, a whole week. And of course, you know, we had a lot of employees, and so we basically didn't get a job <laughs> for a whole week. And so uh, it literally, you know, almost put us out of business because, you know, as we're kind of building some momentum out of the recession. Um, that was a very, so, so we may, I mean, I think we basically had discussions if we don't have a good December, you know, this might be the end. I mean, we might have to button it up, but then the good news was the customer, you know, the work hadn't gone away. It just kind of been mothballed because no one could mm -hmm. literally get around town. And so that work did come flowing in, in December and, you know, from that point forward and then as the economy was then getting better, uh, you know, so that that but I that Halloween blizzard was that was like uh, getting uh, knocked down on a sucker punch, and we were able to come back, and that was so that was the start of it. And then, you know, we worked hard and worked hard, and we got smarter. And then, you know, one month we made, I think we made, you know, forty thousand dollars. And of course, we worked every day all night. But so that was, you know, okay, that's good. After we paid ourselves, and then I think, you know, the next month. I think we made, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars and and it was like, wow, we might, you know, be onto something here because uh, not, not again that we were necessarily that smart, but, you know, the economy was getting better. There weren't many people that did what we did. Uh, we captured some big jobs and all of a sudden now, you know, we had some money to, you know, reinvest and do things. And, you know, that was probably about, you know, 92 or something like that. So a couple of things that I want to dive a little bit deeper into. So you, you said, you know, as you've got, you know, labor and costs and you've got a lack of jobs, explain, you know, what were some of the challenges? Was it cash flow? Was it um, like, how, what was the agreements like with your customers? What, what, what kind of got you into that position? Meaning, uh, so like with that blizzard, you know, because I'm just kind of relating back to our old uh, yeah. business where yeah. you know you've got all these all the costs of overhead from facilities, sure. labor, etc. And right. you know, one of the challenges our our uh, listeners like to address is you know, there's this whole thing of recurring revenue and predictable sure. revenue. But right. you know, what is it? You you said that you obviously you got into that that sucker punch, but then you'd mentioned that you got you got smarter. Not necessarily that you yeah. knew. All the things in the crystal ball, but you know, kind of explain a little bit. In sure. 
Well, I, th I think, um, yeah, a few things. One was uh, my brother was a was a very talented sales executive, and he, prior to this, had actually been on the fast track at, at Best Buy Corporation, which is a headquarter here in Minneapolis. And so he knew a lot about sales and marketing. And so one of the things we did is we installed a telemagic system, which was was really the beginning of now you know now salesforce.com is really you know that type of thing so i think we literally kind of bet the whole company on you know getting we had about 10 sales guys you know to go from you know five contacts a day to 15 you know this was in the days when a salesman would have all his contacts on a uh, you know shoebox right he'd have all yep. his you have them on his desk, and then so we got everybody to load in their contacts into the system, and then you know the system integrated, uh, the the computer integrated with the phone, and so we spent a lot of time, effort, and money to get that going, and that was probably the single best thing we did. And even though it was somewhat, and then we hired a pretty talented uh, sales executive and and paid her a lot of money to be the sales manager. So, so part of it, we were, we were a very sales-focused company. So we would always say, you know, we're not in the printing business. We're in the sales and marketing business. But, you know, we figured out, you know, 10 extra contacts a day by one person, right? That's 50 a week. That's, uh, what, that's 200, you know. So we basically kind of figured out our sales force was making an extra 10,000 contacts a year. And I think we were, we were ahead of the, you know, today I think people... Uh, this is all kind of common sense, but but we were you know kind of on the cutting edge of that that sales force automation stuff. Reverse it all the way back to the amount of phone calls, appointments, proposals, and deals, right? <laughs> well, well, right, and then and then we pay you know we paid our salespeople very well, and you know they were you know this is twenty five years ago. I mean they were making you know a six figure living. So really, I mean, we, we were very focused on, on selling, and then we were also very focused on, we also used to say, you know, we're in the deadline management business. So, you know, if a customer needed a work at three in the morning, you know, we had a guy with a pager and he'd run the work. Now, we charged a lot for it, but, <laughs> you know, we, so that was, really, you know, it was the sales automation. It was kind of the relentless focus on meeting customer deadlines. And then third, of course, charging for that because that's very valuable um, to people. So then as you get into, you know, 92 and you're starting to make a, you know, that when you had mentioned that you're starting to make a few hundred grand now and you're, you know, you've got this kind of shift in mindset where you're starting to see the fruits of your labor, you know, where does the dialogue go with you and your brother and the management team? Well, you know, we, we used to joke that, uh, that, you know, by that time now we were, we were developing, you know, little fiefdoms within the company. So, so we had a, you know, a lamination center and they would fight with, you know, the production center and they would fight with the sales. So, you know, we joked that that's, that's kind of a blessing because now we're big enough that we're actually having, you know, internal squabs. So like, I remember every week I would hold a, uh, sales and operations meeting and then we would hash through, you know, cause salespeople, you know, want it faster and cheaper and, and of course, operations people, you know, want the requirements for the job, which salespeople forget sometimes. So, <laughs> so you know, you know, that was all, you know, right? I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's true. So we would just 
relentlessly focus on. In fact, I remember I, I put a lock on the production control center so the salespeople couldn't even go <laughs> into it. So they had a they had a little window, you know, they would knock on and the production people would answer the window. And so, um, so that's that was all good. You know, we considered that good because those are better problems than waiting for the phone to ring. And then you and your brother had you started to see some stuff with the industry. So as you're you know, kind of looking out the the front windshield. What are was it the industry? Was it the customers? I mean, you you had mentioned that there was kind of this chatter within your industry about consolidation. I mean, kind of explain that to our listeners. Sure. Well, you know, again, I remember, you know, when a color a copy was, you know, five dollars, right? So, so was my dad, so, by the way. <laughs> right. 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 So you know the. So margins were great because, you know, it was really bleeding edge, right? So we would literally send salespeople out and say, you know, we'll run some color copies for you, you know, Mr. Architecture Firm. And, you know, it was like, oh, wow, that's new. And right. So it was kind of fun and exciting. But, you know, of course, like every good business, you know, people start figuring it out. And so we could see that, you know, Kinko's was starting to figure it out. And so, of course, prices were going down you know, margins were going down and you could just, you know, see that. And then, and then with the digital stuff, you know, customers might even, you know, well, probably, you know, your father, you know, they'd buy their own equipment and put it in house, right? So that, so that was going on as well because, you know, with the digital, see, it wasn't, you know, the, you know, the ammonia in your face. It was, a, you know, the process had become very clean because the CAD software had gotten more sophisticated the equipment, you know, was digital, so it was, it was really copiers, not blueprinting anymore, and so that that so customers could kind of maybe do it themselves, and so that whole because part of the business was we ran copy centers inside architectural firms, you know, for the firm. So we'd put in the equipment, we'd put in the people, we'd put in the processes, right? So, but as they were, you know, getting smarter, they might say, well, maybe we'll do that ourselves, and. So there was a big shift going on, and you could just feel it. And then, you know, there was a consolidator going around the country, you know, because he could see it as well. And so he was going to kind of pick off the best people in every market and then take it public. So, so with your you and your brother, you know, before I want to hear more about that, but, you know, with you and your brother, how old are you? How big is the company? You know, where were your heads at? Did one of you want to stay in the business? Or, like, what was the kind of the the conversations between you two well let's see so i was you know we we're probably both in our our he's a year younger so we're in our mid-30s um and you know frankly we you know we'd had a, a really good run i mean we we you know partially we worked hard and you know as my dad likes to say though some it's better to be lucky than smart and so i think you know we had some luck in there and and i think what was happening was you know as the industry's changing you know, we would have, we would have probably you know had to reinvest uh, a bunch. Like I remember a discussion about oh we'll need a million dollar computer system because part of what through this all was happening was, you know, we weren't probably investing you know because you know we started out with very little money and so there was kind of going to be this boy if you really want to make this really sustainable over the long haul there's going to be some serious reinvestment. And with all the turmoil in the industry, I think we were saying, you know, I'm not sure we want to take, you know, that risk. Mm -hmm. So that was a big, big piece of it. 
So did this uh, industry consolidator reach out to you or did you explore a couple paths at the same time? Um, what were the, the different options that you guys had seen? Well, so again, my, my brother, you know, had the connection and this guy was very well known in the industry. He had done a roll up, I believe, of, you know, the auto auto parts stores, you know, prior to doing this. Very savvy guy. And he had gone out and lined up, you know, a bunch of money with a Wall Street investment bank. And, uh, you know, he, I, I, I don't know if I ever saw this or I was told this, but I believe it's true is he. He was so smart. He'd go to trade shows. He actually owned a shop on the West Coast. His his uh, his pitch was he'd hand out his financial statements <laughs> because he was so profitable that, and he knew no one could figure it out either. So I think he was kind of a just in time. He was kind of a Michael Dell. You know, he figured out just in time inventory. So he was way ahead of you know everybody else. But so he he was uh, you know determined, I think, to consolidate the industry, which I think, you know, was a, was a good move on his part. So you guys were obviously a part of that then. Um, did he d solicit you guys or did uh, the industry turmoil and the fact he had to reinvest um, have you guys, you know, kind of um, push you guys to reach out to him? Well, so, you know, again, he was a friend, really. So I wasn't, okay. you know, necessarily reaching out or anything. We had, we had known him for years and we would see him and we'd have dinner with him and um so so he just became I, I think he had he had purchased a couple of our friends and you know one of the things about the guy that that you know to his credit he was a very honorable guy and so the the our friends that had been purchased you know had gone well right so we had we had good insight into how he dealt with people and how he did his deals and so we had a lot of uh a lot of good insight into him and how his practices, and so, so the answer is it, it just really you know there, I think there was there was one other guy um, out of Texas who was, but but not nearly on the scale, and so I think for all sorts of reasons, um, and again in hindsight I think it, we were 100% right it was it was the right thing to go with him, and and so that was you know what we ended up doing. How was he valuing companies? So like, you know, when you guys started the engagement process, I mean, what, did he have a system for valuating companies? Or, I mean, obviously you've got some friends that are probably giving you some insights as well. So when you guys went through that, that process, um, what were some of the key takeaways that you had? Well, one is, you know, <laughs> it, it's good to deal with people you trust, right? It's good right. to deal with known people that you try. I'd say that's, you know, 95% of it. And then he was paying, you know, a fair multiple, you know, based on, you know, the times and, and, you know, what I think is probably pretty standard practice. And, you know, he's a financial guy. So, I mean, he understood cash flow and, you know, he's a pretty sophisticated guy. So, uh, again, I mean, I, I don't think it was a big debate for us to go with him and it frankly wasn't even, I necessarily think, a huge debate to leave the business. And so our situation might have been a little a little different because it just seemed like it all kind of came together in the right way. And it wasn't a big, you know, struggle. And doesn't seem like it was one big event. It kind of just like happened slowly over the course of conversations and trade shows yeah. and industry yeah. industry chatter. Yeah, I think that would be a fair statement. It was kind of over a period of a couple of years, it was just clear what was going on. And we had friends that, you know, really good friends that 
had done deals with him and like, yeah, this worked great. And so it's like, boy, that, you know, how much more do you need than that? Um, so was, and, was, you know, there, was course, there a dollar amount then that you, as you guys kind of just start to reverse engineer, you kind of, you and your brother have a, a dollar amount in your head going, okay, well that, that, that makes sense for me. No, you know, and so I, of course, you know, I do consulting now. So I'll say to people, you know, what's your company worth? And they'll say, well, $3 million. And I'll say, why that? And they say, well, that's what I need. <laughs> but I guess, you know, we were, we were sophisticated enough that, you know, we knew what the company was worth, right? I mean, we, we knew, we understood cash flow, we understood. And, and of course, you know, uh, this gentleman had gone, you know, to Wall Street, and he'd had a big, you know, he had a big, you know, suitcase of money. And so, uh, but no, we were we were you know pretty clear on you know reasonably what our our company was worth, and he was probably willing to pay that and a little more. So it wasn't it wasn't yeah as you said it kind of unfolded over time. You know, it wasn't a big mystery. Um, did you guys us. do Did you guys do anything specifically to clean up the books to you know you know right size your customer base? I mean, like is, was there anything that you guys like intentionally did prior to engaging with him? Not really, because we, you know, <laughs> this is part of the story, you know, we, we got very sophisticated ourselves running our company on financials. So we were just, you know, every month we'd run our financials, you know, at the, I think literally by the fifth business day of the next month, we had, you know, there's some plug numbers maybe, but for the most part, you know, every, we knew what our margins should be. And funny, sometimes we'd, we'd look at the financials or CFO would hand us and I, I can't remember the numbers, but you know, the margin would be off like a percent or two and we'd say, well, we know that's not right because we know the margin should be this. And, you know, barring some weird aberration, mm -hmm. we knew our, you know, we knew our numbers cold. You know, it was it would, literally, I would joke, you know, we'd look on the, we'd say, oh, somebody got a subscription last month, you know, and we'd look at one <laughs> So, you know, it's the book of what, lists. You got to get there. They're making their cold calls. They need to get the book of lists. <laughs> well, part of it was, you know, and you have no, I mean, you literally had to sign, you know, a PO to get a PO. <laughs> I mean, there was, it was, and I would literally, you know, sign, I would look at every invoice coming in. I'd sit in the conference room with my ham sandwich, and I and I'd literally, you know, about half of them, I'd write a note, you know, why are we paying shipping? What's this? What's that? And I yeah. send it back. And so by the time you know a check actually left the company, you know, it was, you know, it was right, and everybody understood what was going on. And so, so in addition to the Salesforce uh, stuff that we did, I mean, really tight financials and understanding cash flow. Uh, was, was so so the answer is we didn't really have to do much cleaning up because if we hadn't sold the company you know we would have just kept doing the same things anyway um, so you know I'm making it you know sound all easy but I mean you know it took us several years to get dialed into that kind of a, a, a mindset right. but we had it we had a you know the other little part we had a very good um, advisory board of some very sophisticated not from the industry but some pretty sophisticated guys running you know fairly uh, sophisticated companies and so they were part of the mix and so they were there as kind of wise counsel and I think we'd meet them you know maybe once a quarter or something like that you know uh, and so they were they get a packet you know that's the other thing you know I'm a big believer in advisory boards they get a packet 
you know, before the meeting, you know, with with the financials and insights into the company, and they come prepared, and we, you know, we ran it very professionally. We paid them, and so uh, you know, that stuff is just invaluable, you know, in my and I remember all the dumb things I'd say to them, they, they, <laughs> like what? They, oh, gee, you know, things <laughs> like, oh, you know, the org chart. They asked me about the org chart, and I'd say, oh, you don't understand all the problems I have, and. <laughs> You know, and and I was only, you know, 31 years old. So, I mean, it's kind of funny now I laugh because now I'm in that position. You know, people do the same thing to me. And so they were all, you know, they were gracious and polite. And, of course, they're not part of your family. And so that's helpful because you don't have, you know, any emotional baggage. It's just a smart guy, you know, giving you feedback, right? So I got to give you credit because, you know, you say it kind of all just happened, but you know, and I don't know what you attribute to some of the hard times or that, you know, sucker punch that you got over the blizzard, but, you know, managing your company to the finances like that and the the level of care that you have for that, because I mean, that's your ultimate scorecard, right? I mean, so what you did is not necessarily all of that commonplace. And, you know, with all the consulting that you do, you probably see the same thing, right? Where, you know, because there's enough room for error in the margins that certain companies make. So, I mean, you definitely had it cleaned right because i think that's you know when they say 80 percent of the deals fall through in due diligence because the the financials they don't know where everything is and why well right and so yeah they didn't you know once we decided to do it i mean literally i think it was a you know 10 days i mean it was quick because there was nothing to really so so you know part of the story is we had a guy from the industry knew the industry knew his numbers and we laid our numbers on the table we knew our numbers and you know, sure, there were some questions and different stuff, but for the most part, not not there wasn't. I've been through you know on other uh, businesses I've sold, I've been through year long due diligence processes, right? So, I think it basically took about you know two weeks or a month, and you know it was done because again, you know they understood and we understood. There weren't a bunch of mysteries. It you know it wasn't a mystery you know about who the customer you know had good customer clean customer data. You know, we knew our biggest customers to our smallest customers. We knew margin by customer. You know, so again, there was not a whole lot to really debate. So what's the difference then, you know, um, for the, our listeners? I mean, you've had multiple experiences selling other companies, you know, whether it's you personally being involved again or just advice. You know, what are some of the things that you are that you see that people do right, people do wrong, and the difference between your two-week sale versus the, the, the year-long uh, um, transaction? Well, you know, in fairness, you know, it, it helps to be, you know, it's almost like we're purchased by a friend, you know, so, so that, you know, is really kind of a, a different thing, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, so, so part of it is, you know, I think sellers uh, or, you know, buyers are very skeptical, right? And if you're writing millions of dollars checks, I mean, you probably should be skeptical. And so so part of our, you may be a little unique story is, you know, there were, there was kind of a mutual trust already, right, which is helpful. And so there were, you know, there were discrepancies and things that need to be discussed. But I mean, I think it was apparent that, you know, we wanted to tell the truth and they wanted to tell the truth. And, you know, if we can sort this out, it'll be a good, you know, and then actually my brother, you know, of course, was staying with the company. So, you know, he wanted, you know, as part of his career, you know, it was a good thing to make it all work, you know, correctly. And, and actually, I think we hit our earnout in like eight months or something. I think we had Jeez. like a three, 
freer now and it you know basically got over the finish line in eight months um so you know buyers are i think rightfully you know kind of uh, skeptical and they want you know and i've dealt with public companies which is a whole nother level of you know i mean scrutiny <laughs> yeah i mean you know where's that tax certificate from tennessee 20 years ago right i mean literally i mean that kind of because you know they have a fiduciary responsibility and so that's a whole nother you know kind of thing and so they have to do things a certain way that that maybe a, a private individual doesn't, of course. So what was your uh, reasoning for getting involved in some other businesses? Was there, so, was there something appealing about the business, the industry, the opportunity? Um, kind of explain the, uh, the interest that you had. Well, so we, we sold the business and then I went off and worked at a uh, kind of a big six accounting firm as a, you know, a consultant. And so I learned in kind of the technology space, I learned about, you know, how big consulting firms work. And I went to actually was hired by a client to do, you know, mergers and acquisitions work. And then around the telecom space. And then after that, I started doing kind of my own investing. And so I, I actually have gotten into things as an investor. Um, and then I've just found, you know, just because of my background, I mean, a lot of times then I'll kind of be, you know, involved on just more of a pat than just a passive level, you know, more of kind of as an advisor. Um, and so, you know, I don't really, I'm kind of industry agnostic, you know, I'm just looking for uh, interesting opportunities. And in the business I last got involved with, it actually sold to a public company. Again, there were people I knew, local people, and I started as a, a subprime investor. And, uh, but again, I knew them. And so, not that that is everything, but it's a lot, right? I mean, if a guy lives two miles away from you and your kids go to school together, you know, that's different than, you know, somebody from New York City or mm -hmm. something. So um, so I'm, I'm always looking for relationships and trust. You know, I don't really get out just investing in things. You know, that's not really my model. Um, that's That's super interesting because, you know, you had the opportunity to really just do whatever you wanted after – you know, your uh, event in your mid thirties. So what, you know, one of the biggest topics that we talk about um, and a lot of our listeners, I think struggle with is, you know, they've been in their business for many, many decades or right. if their identity is so fused right. together with who they, with their company. So how did you go from, uh, how did you keep that distance or like, why are you, why are you still in the game? I guess is a good question. Well, uh, you know, of course, it's the old saying, you know, you got to do something every day, and I'm a bad golfer, so, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not in, you know, I, I'm i on, you know, several, you know, non-profit boards, and, you know, I like to think I'm good at what I do, and um, I, I enjoy, I really, you know, I, I spoke uh, yesterday to the Twin Cities Estate Planning Society, and so uh, I have a, you know, I, part of my talk is, you know, I have a an empathy, you know, for small or closely held business guys, because I am one. Um, and then I think I have a skill set, you know, that can be very helpful, you know, having been through the whole, whole kind of, you know, on your back to sale, you know, twice, right? So I've, I've kind of, and, and a lot of other stuff in between, but I've kind of got it over the finish line twice. And so, um, you know, I just, I really enjoy it. And, you know, it, it, it pays well, and uh, so uh, you know I'm 
I'm always kind of looking for, you know, probably like your dad, right? I, you know, looking for opportunities and. Well, and it's the relationships and trust too, you know. So, is there is there anything, you know, a couple of things before we wrap up? Is you know, for the business owners that are kind of poking their head up for the first time and they're thinking that there might be a second stage, you know, what are some of the uh, the words of wisdom you can give them as they're going through that kind of an emotional journey? Yeah, well, you bring up a good point about the emotional journey, right? So I think part of what the blessing was, uh, have you ever heard of the book, you know, The E-Myth? Yep. Yep, right. So I, I would encourage all your listeners maybe to read that book. And so basically, you know, my gift was I never really had a skill set. So <laughs> I I didn't know anything. So I had to hire the right people and I had to have an org chart and I had to look at my financial statements. And so so I wasn't, you know, I mean, I was passionate about the business, but, but I wouldn't say I was emotionally invested. You know, I think there's a difference. And I think sometimes people get a little goof. You know, I, I, it was always clear to me, you know, I am not my business. You know, I am a guy who has a nice family and great kids and I like nonprofit stuff and I like, you know, certain recreational activities. So, so you know, I happen to do business because I like it and I think I'm good at it. But, you know, my identity isn't, you know, my business and so, uh, which I think in some ways is a blessing. And and I'm not. That's, I agree. I'm not, I'm not saying that you know everybody's got to do it their way and and all that. But I think sometimes people, you know, their identity and their business, it kind of gets mixed up. And 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 I just I I was always clear. And it's funny because our friends would you know in the industry and in our first business, they would, I would say. Well, you guys, you know, we're, we've been at this, most of them had been at it 35, you know, as family businesses and been mm-hmm. at, it, at it a long time. And they'd say, you know, you guys will be selling this company and you'll be off to something else in, you know, five or six years. And they were exactly right, you know. Uh, so, I mean, it's kind of funny. They even could kind of see it themselves, right, that you're not really, you know, this is a great opportunity, but you don't seem like, you know, this is your whole life. In you're not fused together with uh, yeah, digital exactly. blueprints, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I am not a blueprint. <laughs> I love it. Um, so if you are one of those guys and you, you consult with a lot of family businesses and private businesses, what is the first thing that they can do if they have lived and breathed that business and it kind of has become them? Have you seen anything that's really worked for them? Well, you know, I'm kind of a, you know, a fundamentalist pragmatist. So, you know, it, it starts with, you know, understand your numbers, you know, understand your cash flow. Um, you know, do you have a good leadership team? And, you know, the paradox in all of this is your business is worth more generally if you're not involved, right? Mm-hmm. And so I know that's kind of hard for people to get their brain around. But I mean, the last three years, you know, I was in the printing business. Um, I mean, you know, I went to work and, but, but it wasn't like, you know, it, it all depended on me every day. In fact, very few things actually depended on me. And I was very clear there were certain things, you know, I had to pay attention to like sales to labor and, but I, but I hired and, and I mentored a guy all the way from truck driver to operations manager. He was kicking and screaming the whole way, but I, <laughs> I knew that he was exactly the right guy, and to his credit, he did a, a wonderful job. And so he took, you know, a lot of you know the burden of the operations, you know, off me. And again, I was still responsible. And but then that focus that that freed me up to focus on you know more th- you know customer things, business development things. Even though that wasn't you know exactly my role, but by being a business owner, of course, you have all sorts of opportunities to kind of promote your business 
in the community, Rotary Club, et cetera, right? So. I love it. So if there's one thing that we haven't touched on or if there's one last piece of advice you want to leave our listeners with, what would it be? Well, I would say, you know, try to envision your business without you in it. And it's a journey. And then, you know, hire good people, treat them well, pay them well, and, you know, uh, manage them well. And and if you do that over time, you know, you will free yourself up to, I think, I, I, I say to a lot of my clients, you know, you can have your cake and eat it too, but you got to be very intentional. It doesn't just happen. And so, so a lot of these things, if you're intentional and you're kind of, you know, if you do one thing right for 24 months, you've done 24 right things. So, like it. so it would be really that, you know, just, just pretend you're, you know, outside your business and you couldn't come to work for a year, you know, how would you run it? How would you run it? So how can our listeners get a hold of you today? Uh, they can reach me at, uh, my phone number is 612-239-7830. Or Eric at the Gustafson Group, one big uh, dot com. So it's T H E G U S T A F as in Frank S O N dot com. Thanks for coming on the show, Eric. Great. Thanks, Ryan. Good to talk with you.